Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and a short feature series, Remembering John Paul Jr., which focuses on the late race car driver's career in sports cars. Known as one of the most natural talents in the sport, Jr. became a champion in the International Motorsports Association's fearsome GTP class, won many of the biggest endurance races, and added a famous IndyCar victory to his growing reputation before his father's drug trafficking business ensnared the two in 1986. With his career halted during the 30 months he spent in prison, compounded by a refusal to testify against his father, John Paul Sr., the Indiana native returned to racing in 1989 and continued driving until the early 2000s. Altogether, the vast majority of Jr.'s exploits in racing came in sports cars, and I've assembled eight brief episodes with his friends, co-drivers, team owners, and an IMSA official to share their insights and appreciations for all that made John Paul Jr. such a beloved figure inside the sport. And in some of the interviews, our guests speak to the latter years of Junior's life, where he fought and ultimately succumbed to the neurological disorder Huntington's disease. Junior's close friend, author Sylvia Wilkinson, wrote a book titled 50-50 about his life and career before and after Huntington's impact. And while the book is sold in many places, you'd like to support his legacy, a purchase directly from Sylvia through the email address johnmortonracing@att.net. We'll send some of the proceeds to UCLA for ongoing research to combat the disease. We open the series with veteran IMSA official Mark Raffoff, who saw the Paul family enter the IMSA series in the 1970s, became friends with Junior long before he began driving for his father's team. This is all brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Mark Raffoff, you, as I refer to often, you are IMSA royalty. You've been there, not necessarily since the first day, but it sure feels like it. You have been part of IMSA's foundation for just about forever. Part of that amazing, amazing tenure of yours with IMSA dating back to the 70s. Gotten to see a lot of drivers and teams come through. One of them being the mercurial John Paul Jr., who we sadly just lost. What comes to mind, brother, uh, seeing a young kid come into the series and showing that, hey, guess what? I've got the goods. You know, it's it's funny you say that because, you know, when he was like a gopher for dad, or which he was on the team, and he was doing Fords and Sports 2000s, and I think he did some Atlantic stuff, he tore up some cars. <laughs> he wrecked a lot of stuff. And I can remember it. And one of the things about him that I'll say, and I'll, I'll tell you another anecdote later, which would be the Lamar story, which is also pretty spectacular from this thing but he was not only did he have the goods once he figured it out but he had the goods right away and he just got better and better and it was pure talent he didn't really have any you know driver schools and all that stuff he did the minimum to get a license went out tore up some cars dad said you better get this right or you're going to be a mechanic or something else and he got it right you know and he got into that car at lime rock in his first race and won the damn thing what else can you say from the talent standpoint? He's, he was there and natural. You know what I mean? He just do it. The coolest thing about him to me as, as a friend at the time and over the years was just how calm he was. You know, he never got phased. You know, he just went out, did the job and was almost shy, you know, about the whole thing. But boy, he delivered the goods. That's all I can tell you, you know, the Lamont story. I don't know if somebody else might've told you this, No. but when, uh, he and, uh, 
Well, Preston Hand bought the 962. He and Jean Rondeau ended up driving the 956 and finished second. And Foyt was supposed to drive it as well. So AJ bailed out. So he and Jean Rondeau were second that year, I think a Jag one. And I happened to be there. And that was like, okay, I think it was the first time at Le Mans for him. But, you know, at some point at oh dark 30 in the morning, he comes in the pits early. His crew is like standing there going, oh, what are you doing? Uh, he said the right, well, the right front wheel fell off at Indianapolis, which is not where you want the wheel to fall off. Oh. And he drove it back in on three wheels. They looked at it, put another wheel on it. And he said he wasn't upset. He wasn't concerned. He just said, put another wheel on it. Put another wheel on it. Back out he went. Was it didn't even phase him to lose a wheel at Le Mans at Indianapolis, I think it was, and make it from there back to the pits on three wheels and not even be worried about it. Just put another <laughs> wheel on it. <laughs> That's the way he was. You know, you just couldn't get him, unlike his father, he didn't get excited, you know. And I don't think as a, a race director or official through that time that at any time I can recall ever having to talk to him about his conduct on the racetrack. He just went out and outdrove people. He didn't need to play dirty. He didn't need to run people off. He didn't need to do that. And he never did. You know, there was never an instance where I had to go talk to him and say, hey, what are you doing? Never. Spot on, you know. What do you recall, Mark, from John Paul Jr.'s, I guess, early 80s, really building a name of his own? Know that clearly driving with his father was a big part of his identity coming into or onto the scene. And they obviously had a lot of success together. But what do you recall about him as he starts to branch out and whether it's driving someone else's or sharing someone else's 935 or uh, one of the early, you know, a Lola GTP car or whatever it is, there is a, a stage, which I'd love if, if you have recollections of where he went from being part of the father and son duo to, oh, holy crap, <laughs> this is a, a man of his own who can deliver whomever he's driving for. Yeah, I think I think for me, that point came when he when his friendship, you know, Bobby Hogg helped them with the Miller deal at JLP. Yeah. And, and, and Bobby was an instrumental part of John's life, I think, for the rest of his life. The second guy was Phil Conti. So when Junior was sort of under the gun with the legal stuff, Conti and IMSA, everybody had faith in him as a person because he was a good person and kind of understood the circumstances. But when he got in that Buick, that car was probably the fastest thing that IMSA ever created in a straight line. Scary. So you had to be exceptionally brave to drive it fast. And had it been reliable, he'd have won the championship in that car. But it didn't have the reliability. You know, I can remember talking to him about Watkins Glen and this was before the bus stop and all that stuff, but you came out of the last corner, you lifted a little bit in turn one, but from there all the way down to the back straightaway, the car continued to accelerate. It never got terminal. And so that was 210 before you had, had to hit the brakes at the end of the straightaway to get around the corner. So, and then I could also remember him and Whitney Gantz, who was his co-driver, I think for a while, which is yeah. funny because Whitney was about five foot, eight, six, seven, somewhere like that, you know, stocky guy. And I think Bill Adam was on the team. Yep. It was two of them. And John, I forget who drove with who, or they switched it up, but they were like at road America and places like that. It was magic to watch them guys qualify because it was just massive boost. I think it had like a 90 millimeter turbo on it. Unbelievably bad lag. All right. But it had 
who knows, 1,000, 1,200 horsepower, who knows. It just never stopped accelerating. You actually had to go, okay, I need to slow this thing down if I'm going to make this corner. So it never got to a point where you were kind of humming along, you know. It just kept going. And his bravery to be able to fling those cars around as those guys did, and he was the best of that team. But I think that point, to me, was, okay, this guy can drive anything. And then I think that was sort of, right around the time where he had done some IndyCar stuff. Obviously, that yep. story's pretty magical as well, but he made that transition seamlessly. You know, He went from a bigger, heavier, maybe equally fast on a road course to 200-plus miles an hour on ovals like it was nothing, right? I mean, he had no learning curve, if I recall. <laughs> it didn't matter if it was a road course or an oval. The results he got were instantaneous, right? So to me... That's the point where he became a race car driver of doesn't matter what you put him in. He's going to go fast in it. And then, of course, the legal situation changed that. The other half of that for me was when he came back and people like Rob Dyson had faith in him. And when he came back, that natural ability, even though he had done it for a while, was still there because he came back with no real, you know, sort of warming back up to it. Yeah. He was there. You know, he was there right away after being in prison, you know, so. You know, that to me is when the guy was a marketable race car driver for the performance part of it. Maybe his personal situation wasn't the best for certain things marketing wise, but if you wanted a guy to go fast, whatever you had, you'd hire him. That's another thing I'd love to talk about, Mark, because you were there for his return, IMSA's transition from GTP era to world sports car. Uh, you were, again, directly involved with the creation of both formulas. The thing I love about John Paul Jr. coming out of prison is he's now seen as completely untethered from any past obligations. He is strictly being viewed as a talent to hire and holy crap. If you look at the amount of teams that he drove for Mark after he got out, it is, I mean, you can't possibly keep them all in your memory because there are so many and maybe you could just share some insights of, of maybe the nineties in particular, because good Lord, I don't think that guy had a free weekend ever. No, he drove anything and everything all the time. I think he did some trans am stuff. I think he did IndyCars, cars, he did IRL. He did, uh, obviously he was doing IMSA with, uh, the, the world sports cars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he was just a driving fool. He drove everything and people hired him because he could deliver the goods. And unfortunately, my recollection without looking at stats and stuff, a lot of times the equipment let him down. True. Not in the speed part, but the reliability. Like like I said, the Buicks. If the Buicks had been more reliable, and that was probably more the car than the, the engines. The engines were quite good, but they also ate gearboxes and axles and other stuff like popcorn. He could make that transition from one car to another car instantly. You know, so you drive a, a GTP car and then you drive a world sports car. I mean, it was a whole generational shift of technology and car types in that time frame. And he stepped out of one generation right into another generation with equal skills and equal results. You know, he was always at the front. He never, I can't recall him ever not being competitive in whatever he drove. The only times were early on, like I said, where I actually sat in a hotel room at the pool one night with him and a couple of the other guys. And it was back when he was still the gopher and he was going, man, I got to figure this out. Or <laughs> I don't know what I'll do if I can't get this right. And he <laughs> got it right. You know, he figured it out and he figured it out without a whole lot of fanfare. And then when he got into the big, powerful cars, 
his his skill sets were phenomenal. I mean, he could drive a 935 sideways. The other thing I think was a turning point was the year that Stomelin joined him here in Sebring. Because mm. Rolf was one of the, you know, probably one of the premier guys of that time. And I think he learned a lot from Rolf. If you talk to an Alan Springer or, or guys like that, all the people that ever drove Porsches, everybody ranks Stomelin as one of the best ever. Unfortunately, got cut short at Riverside. But he, he seemed to like through osmosis, have learned at those two races a lot more about winning big races than, you know, a short sprint race at Lime Rock. To win Daytona and Sebring back-to-back in anything is pretty exceptional. But Rolf was the, the world-class guy, and I think John learned a lot from him, not necessarily through personal interaction, but just watching how that guy worked his craft. And from that point on, whether it was a Lola T600, or their 935s, or the JLP4, or Preston's cars, or Lamar, or Indy cars. He just seemed to have this, okay, I know how to drive, but I also know how to win. And that's another major step. There's a lot of fast guys that don't win. So he learned a lot of smarts, I think, from guys like Stomelin, who had the smarts. Last question for you, Mark, to close. Having been part of North, biggest North American sports car series forever you have been in the orbit of and spoken directly with and gotten to know many of the biggest names biggest stars famous legends right the ones that when we look back we go wow that person or those people are on imsa's mount rushmore similar john paul jr had i would say the same talent as them and also had a lot of the same victories as them a champion as well in imsa Uh And yet, if we're talking about John Paul Jr., the man, uh, some of the legends of the sport who let you know they're legends, John Paul wasn't that guy, right? He, he, that's the beautiful thing. Totally humble. And like I said, almost shy, you know, he never, I can never remember him, you know, touting his own horn or anything like that. He just went out and got the job done. And when he did well, he smiled, you know? He, he didn't go crazy. He, he was totally humble. And as I said earlier on, unbelievably calm. I, I can't recall him ever being agitated. He just took everything in stride, clearly learned from it. He absorbed stuff from, like I said, some really great drivers that he shared time with. And I don't think anybody who ever raced against him would ever say anything bad about how he raced. And I don't think anybody who ever raced against him would in any way not consider him a threat to beat him. And that includes every one of those great guys that you and I could rattle off. All right. They, they, they wouldn't say, oh, uh, you know, he was a flash. And no, nobody would say that about that. You know, about John, he was he was the real deal. The people he raced against knew it. He raced them clean. He raced them fair. And as you said, he beat most of them at some point or another in something. Not too many people could say that. If you put a list of the five, maybe most talented people, drivers in IMPS's history, not necessarily ones that had the most victories or the most this or the most championships, because there's guys that had more. He was certainly there. I think the other guy he learned a lot from was Holbert. Mm. In the GTP era, I think John was a good student of Al's, who's also on that my list of the top five for the very same reason. Al was not a showboater. He just delivered the goods, you know? Amen, Brother Mark. There's no way... 
he will have the legacy that he should have, in my opinion. So the more we can do to help that, not just from the racing side, but what he did in the end of his life as well, the better. Thanks once again for listening to Remembering John Paul Jr. Thanks as well to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com for supporting all we do. This is your first time listening. You might pay a visit to MarshallPruittPodcast.com. We have more than 1,000 episodes awaiting your perusal, plus a lovely little subscribe page where you might follow along with all the new content we generate.